almost a year ago, January the 5th, I began preaching a, a series of four messages on the topic of suffering. Um, 51 weeks ago, this is how I started that series, and I just want to bring this back to your recollection. I think it's a helpful introduction to what we're going to be looking at this morning. The Bible is clear. Followers of Jesus Christ will suffer. We will endure pain. Some of it is because we live in a fallen, sin-cursed world that's full of chaos, disease, and natural disasters. Some suffering is caused by our own sin and foolishness, and some is because we are victims of other people's evil. Yet it is in suffering that God often powerfully shows us his grace and faithfulness. It is in suffering that we often learn the most about how he sustains us, how he provides real peace in the midst of storms, and how he brings good to bear from out of the midst of tragedies. Of course, I don't think any of us enter a new year praying, Lord, I want to know you better, so please give me suffering this year. Uh, but this is such a crucial topic. The late David Paulison wrote, the wisdom to suffer well is like manna. You must receive nourishment every day. You can't store it up. In other words, you can't read a book or hear a sermon and say, okay, I'm equipped from here on out to suffer. I know what to do. We can't simply gird ourselves in that way when tragedy strikes. It's something we have to continue to feed ourselves on. So that was from almost a year ago, and I, I don't bring that up to claim to be prophetic in any way because, in fact, there is nothing remarkable as believers in Jesus Christ about saying that we will suffer because the Bible says that over and over again, that we should anticipate that as those who follow after the living Savior, that suffering is inevitable. However, in early January 2020, I doubt any of us had any inkling of what this year would hold. There has been such widespread sorrow and loss and heartbreak. There is every year in, in any body of believers, there are those wonderful peaks of joy and celebration and gladness, and they overlook valleys of intense sorrow and pain. 2020 just seemed to have more of its share of the latter than perhaps past years. Even those of you not personally touched by disease or the death of a loved one or some kind of economic loss or some other direct suffering, and many of you were, even for the rest of us, it still felt like there were more reasons for, for sadness, uh, more occasions to be appalled by evil, maybe even more times of loneliness, because at the very least, we've all endured more distance, more separation from one another than we would like to have more of that longing for warmth and affection. We've, we've settled for waving and maybe an occasional elbow bump when we would much rather hug and express our embrace more closely. There are loved ones we've only been able to see on Zoom or in pictures, and for some of you with elderly loved ones behind some glass, partition of some kind. We've watched our country continue to, to sink further into anger and partisan strife and name-calling. Evil and arrogance seem to spread. Patience and humility and grace and forgiveness are increasingly in short supply. And thanks to the news media and social media, both of which thrive on clicks, we, we are reminded of the death and the destruction and the evil and the heartbreak and the suffering over and over. It's not that the world is a worse place. It's just that we get it 
more in front of us, in front of our eyes. We see it more. The world has always been fallen since Adam and Eve's sin. What's happening today is no worse than when the Babylonians or the Romans invaded their neighboring countries and destroyed them for the sake of growing their empires. It's no worse than when tens of millions of people died in plagues in Europe in the Middle Ages. It's no worse than when millions of Africans were enslaved by America and other countries. No worse than when millions of Jews were put to death 80 years ago because of who they were as Jewish people. We live in a broken and fallen world. I want you to turn to Psalm 44. Psalm 44. John Calvin's credited with saying that the Psalms are like a mirror of the soul. They work that way and that they, they give voice to our gladness and our joy. In the Psalms, we're able to to give praise to God in ways that might even seem inexpressible, and yet the Psalms help us communicate that. But the Psalms also give voice to our grief and our sorrow. There is wailing, there is sadness in the Psalms, which explains why nearly 60 of the Psalms are identified as lament Psalms. The word lament is found throughout the Scriptures. It is the English translation of a couple of different Hebrew words, all of which get to the point of weeping, mourning, wailing. Uh, Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, when he's warning the nation of Judah in Jeremiah 4.8 says, For this, because of God's pending judgment, for this, put on sackcloth, lament and wail, grieve, be sorrowful, for the fierce anger of the Lord has not turned back from us. The dictionary defines lament as a passionate expression of sorrow or grief. We who understand biblical lament, though, get it in a little deeper sense than merely a passionate expression of sorrow, because we understand at the heart of biblical lament is weak, sinful, frail creatures crying out in desperation, to the eternal creator, God. There is a sense in which we, out of our brokenness, are appealing to, to the one who is perfect and complete. Because we are human, we lament pain and suffering. Because we're made in God's image, we lament suffering that's caused by evil. And if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, then as one who is being made new in the image of Christ, we lament our own sin and what it causes, the, the destruction that our own sin causes. The Psalms of Lament help us. They show us what it's like to express some of this sorrow over evil, ours and the world's, and over chaos and disease, some of how we express that. In fact, I, I, I think it's fair to say the Psalms of Lament allow God to teach us how to voice our pain, to express that back to him. One writer put it this way. I think this is helpful. The predominance of laments at the very heart of Israel's prayers, and he's using that as a description for the Psalms. So the predominance of laments at the very heart of Israel's prayers means that the problems that give rise to lament are not marginal or unusual, but rather are central to the life of faith. Moreover, laments show that the experience of anguish and puzzlement in the life of faith is not a sign of deficient faith, something to be outgrown or put behind one, but rather that anguish and puzzlement is intrinsic to the very nature of faith. I think that's right. 
I, I, I think the laments of the Psalms help us to see that suffering and sorrow is part of our lot and responding to that in anguish and sometimes even puzzlement with questions with whys is something that is very much a part of our growth as the children of God. So I want to spend this last Sunday of 2020 in a psalm of lament. And I think this psalm in particular helps remind us of who and what we cling to in suffering, of what truths we, we need to hold fast to and anchor ourselves to when there are no clear answers, when the prognosis is not good. And from Psalm 44, I think we get a clear view of what God's people are holding to as they are suffering, apparently some brutal defeat as a nation. And they don't understand why. I'm going to read the whole psalm. Psalm 44 begins, O oh God, we have heard with our ears. Our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days and the days of old. You, with your own hand, drove out the nations. But them, speaking now of their ancestors, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. You are my king, O God, ordain salvation for Jacob. Through you we push down our foes. Through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me, but you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. In God we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. Selah. But you have rejected us, and disgraced us, and have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe, and those who hate us have gotten spoil. You have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You've made us a byword among the nations, a laughing stock among the peoples. All day long my disgrace is before me and shame has covered my face at the sound of the taunter and reviler at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way, yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If, if we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart, Yet, for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. We don't know much about the setting of this psalm. There's not detail given other than it is a psalm written by the sons of Korah. It has some echoes 
of, of being similar to Psalm 60, which is written by David, but we really can't speak with certainty as to what was happening at the time this was written. Commentators offer four or five different possibilities, all of which may be, but none of which the text clearly says to us. What we do know is this seems to be a national lament. This is a, a corporate lament. We're getting both sort of the, the, the group speaking at some points and then perhaps the, the king or a representative of the group who speaks at others, but talking about some level of great defeat as a nation that they do not understand. They are suffering in agony and humiliation. We would presume, based on the description, this is some kind of military defeat that in some way they have been beaten by foes. Some have been plundered, some have been captured, some have been killed in the process. And it is yet not some form of divine judgment. One of the things that we're going to see as we continue to walk through this is it seems that the people were striving to obey God at the time. And so they are shocked by this defeat. This is not what they had expected in any way. This is suffering that has come upon them in dramatic form. The psalm, by, by application to us as believers in Jesus Christ, I, I want to encourage you in this way. I think it speaks to when we are caught in unexpected pain, when you face some sort of devastating loss, suddenly harmed by someone else's sin, somehow in prolonged suffering, and there just doesn't seem to be an explanation, or an answer to it all. Where do you cling in those moments? Where does your help come from? And I want to suggest to you this lament of Psalm 44 has four parts to it, four truths that God urges us to cling to in times of suffering. And the first one is cling to the truth that our God redeems. One of the Hebrew words that's translated as lament has within it some level of recounting or recalling, sort of a how we got here kind of thing. I'm, we might use the word lamenting in some way in the sense of lamenting the past, sort of recalling what, what happened to transpire to, to this point. And that's what verses 1 through 8 do. If we just had Psalm 44, 1 through 8, we would say, oh, this is a wonderful psalm. This is a psalm of praise. It's easy to follow. It has a great message to it of, of God's goodness. And we could read through those first eight verses and say, yes. But we need to keep this in context. The psalmist wrote the first eight verses just like he wrote the rest of them. They're all part of one coherent psalm. And so verses one through eight are the prelude to the lament. They already are suffering in their suffering, they are not deterred from placing their confidence in God based on who God is and what they know about God as Redeemer and how they are recollecting the fact that he has power to redeem. And so they, in the first four verses, talk about how they've gotten these stories handed down from, from Moses on down of God's power to save. And they have been told these things from their ancestors. Generation after generation has described how God is the hero of the story. He is the one who, who saves. And so they are now reciting that back. Oh, God, generations have told us of, of all that you have done, how you cause us to dwell in this land. You, you planted our ancestors here. You won the victories. It was not 
It was not our, our, our weaponry. It was not the, the military strategy of Joshua or the others. It was your hand. In fact, verse 2 is emphatic when it says, You, with your own hand, drove out the nations. You did this to the enemies, but you planted our ancestors in that land. You have done this. Verses 4 through 8, the, the memories are a little closer, a little more recent. We, in our day... We've, we've seen you defeat enemies. We've seen you give victory. You have saved us. Therefore, our confidence is in you. We are praising you. Our God is a redeeming God. All of us can join with the, the chorus in verses 1 through 8 and tell of how God has saved. All of us can give stories of how God has delivered in the past, how God worked in circumstances that seemed hopeless and bleak. And God rescued, he saved for his glory and for our good. Amen? Amen. God does this. He redeems. And so our trials and suffering, just as is going on here in Psalm 44, offer that, that opportunity to pause and reflect and remember that, wait, God has rescued before. God has redeemed before. You, God, you've done it. I can't save myself. And so in whatever we face, we need to cling to the truth that our God redeems. He's done it before. He'll do it again. He's in the process of, of being the Savior, of, of, of doing these things. This is who he is. He is a redeeming God. He's done it, and he'll do it again. We need to cling to the truth that God redeems. Secondly, cling to the truth that God is in our suffering. Here's where the psalm takes that dramatic turn. Verse 8, in God we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. Selah. Let's, let's just pause and reflect on giving thanks. And then verse 9, but, this is another one of those but gods, but God, you've rejected us and disgraced us. You haven't gone out with our army. Suddenly, we're, we've stepped into the deep end on this one. What was, what was moving along so well and seemed so clear has now taken this difficult turn of, but God, the powerful God who redeems his people, now says is rejecting his people. The great God who gives victories and, 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 and who shows his strength for his people now is allowing them to fall into the hands of their enemies and be captured and some killed. And the people are, are, are pulling no punches. You, you've, you've made us a taunt of our neighbors. You, you've made us the laughing stock of nations. They are looking at us as they crush us and saying, there's those people who claim to believe in that one God, and they are now destroyed. All the way down to verse 19, you've covered us with the shadow of death. If you look at verses 9 through 14 and just glance at it, you see the pronoun that just keeps coming up again and again is you. We are being defeated and captured and even killed. And God, this is on you. You are in this. I want to suggest to you that what we, what we do with a passage like this reveals a lot about our theology, about our understanding of God and what we really believe about him. Because the, the temptation when we come to these sorts of passages 
is to want to explain it as, a, as an example of the people failing in their thinking. In their pain, they are just foolishly blaming God, and, and, and so the, the problem for all of this lies in them and the way that they're looking at it. The, the problem, though, with that is if we profess faith in the sovereign God of verses 1 through 8, if we hold to the fact that he is the one who gives the victories, his arm is strong, we have not scored any victories, we cannot come to verse 9 and shrug our shoulders and go, hmm, something went wrong here. Apparently God lost his power. Apparently God, God turned his back. Apparently God was not involved in this because this is too much of a mess. And, and so we somehow try to think that we're rescuing God and his character here when the people are defeated. The, the, the truth that these, these, these people in Psalm 44 clearly understand in the midst of their pain was that God was in this. God was still at work even in their defeat. If we are being defeated, they are saying, God must have ordained this. We can't put God here in the victory, but not here in the defeat. James Boyce writes, I think this is just a spot-on statement, a disaster is only puzzling if God is in control, is favorable to us, but lets it happen anyway. That is precisely what's happening here in Psalm 44. We believe you are in control. We have seen how you are favorable to us, and we don't get it. <laughs> how is this happening? Because we know that, that you're not detached from this. God remains sovereign. God is still strong enough to redeem them from these circumstances, and so that means they now know that the unchanging God is also present and at work in their suffering, that he is orchestrating this even for his glory and for their good. But that's, that's important because what it says to us as believers is God is in our pain. God is, is at work in our suffering. Just as, just as we understand it here in Psalm 44, God has ordained that we walk through the experience of loss and suffering and pain but because we know he is, we can still have hope and peace and understand that there is purpose in this. This is not just some random act of the cosmos, some kind of karma coming back to bite us. This is the, the good, kind, sovereign God who gives victories, who is also ordaining for us the experience of loss in that moment to accomplish his purposes. Verse 11 You've made us like sheep for slaughter, and especially verse 22, for your sake we are killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Those, those verses should sound familiar. You might be thinking, where, where have I read those before? Romans chapter 8, Paul brings these up. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, famine, nakedness, danger or sword? As it is written... For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. The hope that we cling to, that the, 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 the folks did back in Psalm 44 in our suffering is this. God has not abandoned us. 
God is in our suffering to achieve his purposes for our good and for his glory. He is still working in us in this. And so we, we run to him in these times of hardship, knowing full well that he is there and, and makes perfect sense even out of the evil and chaos that we cannot explain and cannot answer. His, his nearness and his purpose helps us to know that even if we don't fully understand it, there is reason here, and it's good, and God is still in control. Remember the, the, the psalmist who writes 9 down through 16, same psalmist who wrote verses 1 through 8. And I would submit to you again, he didn't write verses 1 through 8. God, you are mighty and awesome, and you've done all these great things, and then put his stylus down, and then a month later, when things took a bad turn, went back and finished the psalm with, oh, God, you've you've turned against us. This is the same God. Our confidence rests in the same God who ordains the victories and the defeats, all for the accomplishment of his wise purposes. So we need to cling to the truth that God redeems. Second, that he's in our suffering. Third, that God calls us to faithfulness even while we are suffering. Here's what I would suggest to you is one of the real rubs in this psalm. It comes up in verse 17. All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you've broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If, if we had forgotten the name of God or spread our hands out to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake, we are killed all the day long, regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. This was not a time in Israel's history, and there are these times, when it's fairly easy for the prophet to point to the nation of Israel and say, remember That God said, if you disobey me, you will experience punishment for that. There will be curse that comes with the the disobedience. This isn't apparently one of those times when the prophet can say to the nation, hey, listen, you got this all wrong. It's, It's all about your sin, and it's your sin and your rebellion that have caused this because, in fact, the people are saying, we don't get it. We're striving to follow after you, and they are they are burying their souls in this and saying, Lord. If, 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 this were, if this were punishment, if, if we had done something that this was punishment for, wouldn't you tell us? You who, who searches our hearts, you who knows what we do, if we were claiming that we've tried to obey you and yet we had stumbled and we weren't, wouldn't you have shown us? That, that's, that's I, I think, what's implied in verse 21 when it says, would not God discover this if they had spread out their hands to a foreign God? It's not saying, would not God have suddenly seen this and said, oh, look, that's what they're doing. When it says, would not discover it, it, it has the idea in the Hebrew of, would not God have unearthed it? Would he not have brought it to the surface? If, if, if the issue here and what caused all of the agony of verses 9 through 16 what was because of our sin, God, we would plead with you to rebuke us. Proceed the punishment or with the punishment, give us something that would show us that we need to repent and turn. But at least until this point, they're saying, you've not. You've not uncovered this for us if there's something. As far as we know, we are striving to follow after you. And they are bewildered in that sense. But I think there's another 
clue about what's happening here, and that's that statement in verse 22, that for your sake we are killed all the day long, regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. There seems to be, I don't want to stake everything on this verse, because I, I, I think sometimes we get to the place where we think you, you, we've got to have answers for these things, and maybe this is the key that unlocks it. I, I do think there's some semblance of understanding in verse 22, that at least part of our suffering is because we belong to you. Yet we are regarded as sheep to the slaughter and killed for your sake all the day long. As one commentator puts it, that, that they saw the possibility that their defeat and humiliation were battle scars, not punishment. There's a sense in which they are seeing that their suffering is suffering as the people of God, as they are suffering for his sake. So let, let's just apply this, these verses, to our lives. I think one of the things we should draw from this is by God's grace, we are able to remain faithful during suffering. That is, that is one of the profound things at the heart of this is all this has happened we haven't forgotten you. We haven't turned from you. We haven't turned our backs on you. All of this has happened, and we are still coming to you and still pleading to you. Our, our desire for us when we suffer should be that we be able to go back and, and recite these words in Psalm 44 and make this our prayer. Lord, search my heart, you who searches hearts, if there's something I need to see in this, if there's something you need to uncover in me, help me to see. If there's some sin I'm cherishing, something I need to repent of, please show it to me so that I can turn from it. But also, God, help me to just be faithful to you. Help me to not turn from you in the midst of my suffering. Help me to not be like Job's wife and say, curse God and die. Help me to honor you in the midst of this and to continue to remain faithful to what you have called me to do, even when it hurts. In the New Testament, that's the message Peter gives to his readers when he says, if, if you're going to suffer, it should be suffering for doing good, not for doing evil. If, if then you, you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God, for to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps seems to be the case, at least somewhat in Psalm 44, that they are suffering simply because they belong to him. And that's what we are called to, is to suffer for the sake of, of, of righteousness and, and, and to trust that our God is still at work in all of that and not be afraid for suffering for doing good. Peter adds, for it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. By the enabling power of, of God's spirit indwelling in us, by the truth of his word, by the blessing of the community that he's put us in to help us, you and I are enabled to stand faithful when our circumstances are awful. I have uh, I, I prayed it with a number of you when you've been in situations, and it's because I pray it for myself, and that is as you walk through this, remain steadfast. God, please hold them steadfast. Hold them upright through this as people who worship you and honor you through the midst of this trial, that that might be our plea. And that's what, that's what I think we're seeing here is a semblance of we don't want to forget your name. That's, that's not where we don't want to turn our backs on you. We don't understand this, but we believe you're still in this and you're still sovereign. All right, cling to the truth that God redeems, that he's in our suffering 
that he calls us to faithfulness even when we're suffering. And then fourth, finally, cling to the truth that God does desire to hear the cries of our hearts. We read again, verses 23 through 26. Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. I wonder sometimes when I read words like this, if there's not a cultural gap that we suffer from sometimes as ancient Middle Eastern believers in God and being more expressive. We, we tend to, in our Western American mindset, be a little more uptight and put together and want to say precisely the right thing and don't want to look like we're showing some forms of weakness. That is, that is clearly not the case here as they are crying out. This is the, this is the petition part of the psalm, to go with what, what Stuart said earlier when he prayed, that Acts sort of model, supplication at the end, that this is it. That they've worshipped, they've acknowledged God being in their suffering, they've asked um, that, 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 that they remain faithful, but here really is the, the heart of the petition. Everything is sort of leading up to this point. Lord, we know you're a saving God. We've heard the stories. You're in our suffering. You didn't abandon us. This isn't pointless. You've called us to remain faithful. We believe all that but the heart of the petition is, Lord, this is hard. This hurts, God, to the point that we are crying out and it almost feels like nothing's happening. It feels like even as we are, are pleading, we're not, we're not seeing the, the sort of response that we would love to see at this moment that would tell us that for sure you, you hear us and you're answering and we are crying out from a sense of despair. That, that picture in verse um, 25, our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. We might say, I have, I have hit rock bottom. There is, there's the, it's like the bottom fell out and there is nothing. And God, I am... I am hurting, and I can't fix this. I know I can't fix this. I'm, I'm, you're reminding me again that I can't fix this. And the psalmist is desperately pleading for deliverance. And the fact that this is part of the inspired word of God should teach us that God does desire to hear us in our pain. God desires to hear us Speak to him as children who are desperate for help and plead to him for what we need. What do we do with the psalmist, though, and his, his commands to God to awaken and revive himself and rise up? We, we know, and, and certainly so does the psalmist, God is not actually asleep or indifferent. So, so what do we make of these, even these bold questions? Why? Do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? I, I'll suggest two things that I, I think are happening in this final passage. One is, I think on a very simple level, this is an exhortation to persist in passionate prayer. This is reminiscent of the widow who goes next door to the judge that she wants justice from, and, and she 
annoys him even to try to get justice. And she continues, and, and Jesus says that this is an example of praying and not growing faint, praying and not giving up and, and, and getting weary. And, and I would submit to you that the psalmist is reminding people by his own actions, by the nation's own actions, that we are to keep coming to God and pleading with God and crying out to God and not giving up. Listen, if, if they had believed what, what we could take from this, that, well, they, they've actually become convinced that God is indifferent, God is asleep, God has turned their back on them, we wouldn't have this psalm. But the very fact that they are continuing to plea with God, that they are continuing to cry out, is a statement of the fact that they know God is there and, and, and so they, they're using words, awake, rouse, rise, redeem. We talk about imperative verbs when we study the Bible. The imperatives are the commands. Typically, it's God to man, the imperative. We, we get the explanation of who we are in Christ and then the imperative of what we're called to do. This time, the imperatives are man to God. These are the only imperatives here. There's one earlier on, but, but this is the main part of, of commands. God, awake. God, revive yourself. God, redeem us. They, they have not thrown their hands up. They have not thrown the towel in. They have not resigned themselves to, to saying, well, God in his sovereignty has ordained this, and therefore there's nothing that can be done about it, and so we're just going to sit here and let it happen and be helpless. No, they are, they are still passionately crying out to God out of a fundamental belief that that's what he's called us to do, to, to express to him the the hurting heart and pour out what it is that he, he longs to hear from his children, that we, we need you. We need rescue. I think that's there. I think the second thing really is the last phrase of this psalm as to how you explain this awake and rouse and rise up and redeem. And it, it, it all rests on that last statement in this psalm. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. That's pivotal. At the very end, the psalmist reminds us that God is a loving, merciful, steadfast God. He is not changing. His love is not diminishing. His love has not taken a break. He continues to love his people with a merciful tenderness and kindness that is unlike anything we know here on earth apart from him. That's the foundation to this whole section. Even when it appears, and, and judging from their words, that the appearance, the fleshly experience is God is not answering our prayers. Our circumstances are not changing. It's been a year like, like 2020 and the losses and the sorrows and the injustices just keep piling up and it's tempting to cry out, God, where are you? Why, why are you allowing this to happen? Even in those moments, the truth matters. God is steadfast in his love. This is, this is not one of those cases where like our world around us would say we all have our, our truth, our version of the truth. There is our perception and the perception of those praying here in the Psalms is very real. They are in anguish and they hurt and, and they're pleading to God, and, and it, it's almost feeling like nothing's happening, and yet there is the truth they know. God, you are steadfast. You are merciful. You are kind. 
And we are here because you want to hear from us, because you long to hear from us. This is where our perception needs to meet God's truth, to, to pour out the questions and to plead with God and to know that his love is steadfast. Our God redeems. That is, after all, the message that I would submit to you that the Apostle Paul takes out of Psalm 44 when he writes Romans 8. It's not just this, I do this, I don't know if you do it, but you know, you, you, you go to your treasury of scripture knowledge or some other tool you go to, I want to find a verse on suffering. Oh, look, Psalm 44, 22 says we are killed all the day long. I'll use that verse here in Romans 8. I, I, I suspect it's much more like the Apostle Paul is meditating on Psalm 44. And what strikes him again is the steadfast, unchanging love of God. Because if you remember, the context in which he quotes this psalm, for your sake we are being killed all the day long, what leads into that? The, the context is, what can separate us from what? The love of God. What can separate us from it? Can, can tribulation or famine or nakedness or persecution or any of these things, danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Paul is, Paul is reading this just as we do with hearts breaking for these people because we can see people in our own lives who are walking through hardship and sorrow at this moment and yet wanting to say, God's love is steadfast. Nothing separates those who are trusting in him from the love of God in Christ. At the end of, of, of 2020 and with all that lies ahead of us in 2021 and all that is to come, that is our hope, that this steadfast, covenant-keeping God, who in love gave his own son for us to die for us, will not separate us from his love by any earthly circumstance. Romans 8, 31 and 32. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Paul's able now with the benefit of, of, of now the, the fulfillment of this revelation and the, the realization that the steadfast love of God that the sons of Korah wrote about in Psalm 44 has been most clearly seen in Jesus Christ and in the death and resurrection of Christ, and in the hope of the gospel. And Paul is now able to say, of course, in his steadfast love, we can experience nakedness, persecution, strife, disease, sickness, all of these things, and know that we are not separated from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Our laments are pleasing to him. He longs to hear the cries of our heart, but our laments must, must collide with truth. They must ultimately come to that place, much as the psalmist too, of saying, you know what, Lord, this is my perception. I, I am hurting. I don't know what you're doing in this. I, I, I wish you hadn't been here at this point in time. I wish this hadn't happened. I wish my loved one wasn't sick and dying. I, I, wish, I wish I hadn't lost my job. I don't understand it. But you are a steadfast, redeeming God. And I believe that with my being because you have been gracious enough to give me that faith to hold to in this moment. To know that nothing separates us from his love for us.
as we pray, here's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to guide you where you are seated. You, you will pray quietly. I just want to give you some things from out of this psalm and just pray quietly where you are. The first one is just take a moment to prayerfully recount some of God's works of redeeming in your life. Just take a moment and pray and give praise for some ways that you have seen God save in your life. Would you take a moment and just praise him that he is in whatever you are facing now, whatever you will face in the weeks and the year to come. Praise him that he is in it, accomplishing his good purposes in your life. Would you also take a moment just to thank him for the gift of faith that he has given you, to believe in him, but also pray that, that by his spirit he would keep you walking in faithfulness and obedience regardless of, of what happens. Lastly, if, as we've gone through this this morning, if, if a situation or a person has come to mind, some hurt that you are experiencing even now or, or some loved one around you, and I just want to encourage you to just take this quiet moment and just cry out to God, plead to Him to accomplish His good work in the midst of this. Father, our faith can be weak and small at times, but we pray that what your Spirit has just been doing in the hearts of your people here and, and online has been prompting us to, to speak words of praise and adoration and cries of help. We thank you that you hear us, that you do not sleep nor slumber, we thank you that you hear us and that you will accomplish your good work. Father, if there are any listening, watching who are 
who are not trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ and the, the one that you sent to rescue us and save us from sin. Father, I pray that they would cry out to you this day for the forgiveness of their sins, for the salvation that can only come through Jesus and his death and resurrection. And Lord, as your people, we praise you that nothing can separate us from your love. Thank you that you are present with us and will be in all that we walk through. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen.